Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 200 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is family caregivers and safe driving for seniors. More and more seniors are drivers, just as more and more seniors are doing more and more of the many things that require skill, knowledge and mental functioning. And of course, aggressive and unsafe driving are a continuing problem, but they're not a new problem. But bad driving can affect drivers of any age with any type or various types of health conditions. Now, in Canada, there's recently been moves to increase insurance premiums for seniors, questions about what physicians do and should do in relation to driving for seniors with what seem to be memory challenges. And there's been talk about encouraging families to report to the police their older family members, they believe, shouldn't be driving, which is why our topic today, family caregivers and safety safe driving for seniors is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Now, Michael is a medical professor, ethicist, and one of Canada's best-known geriatricians. He's published several books, including Late Stage Dementia, Promoting Comfort, Compassion and Care, Moments That Matter, Cases in Ethical Elder Care, Parenting Your Parents, and his memoir, Brooklyn Beginnings, A Geriatrician's Odyssey. He's worked to advance the understanding of aging, ethics, and end-of-life care is valued by the public and professional audiences. Born in the United States, his educational and training experiences span the United States, Scotland, Israel, and Canada. And he's currently the Medical Program Director of Palliative Care at Baycrest Health Sciences and a Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Now, Susan is Vice President for Advocacy at CARP, the national non-partisan, non-profit organization committed to advocating for social change that will bring financial security equitable access to health care, and freedom from discrimination for all Canadians as we age. 
Under her leadership, CARP advocacy has helped to shape the public discourse on key issues such as pension reform, investor protection, mandatory retirement, workplace age discrimination, home care, and age-friendly cities. And she's challenged the moves, the questions, and the talk related to seniors' driving. Increasingly, CARP has become a trusted source of public policy input at all levels of government and the media. And in 2012, Susan was named one of the Hill Times' top 100 lobbyists. So welcome to the show, Michael and Susan. Nice to meet you. Great. Now, I'm going to start with you, Michael, first, please. Mm. Just please tell us a bit more about your work. What do you do? What do I do? I do a lot of things. Uh, I'm at Baycrest. Um, my work here includes some administration minor. I used to be chief of medicine and vice president of medicine, but that I finished about six years ago. Now I'm the administrative medical program director of our palliative care unit, which using another terminology would be a hospice type unit for people who are not only for the most part elderly and have some condition from which they're likely to die in the next foreseeable future, short range foreseeable future, uh, but often have, among other things, cognitive impairment, malignancy, end-stage heart disease, kidney disease, the wide range of conditions uh, from which people ultimately succumb in their later years. We do have younger people as well, but our focus is on the elderly because we're a geriatric center. I'm a co-director of the uh, ethics program, so I teach ethics, I write about ethics, I am part of the Joint Center for Bioethics at the University of Toronto, and that's been an area of great interest of mine for the last decade. In addition, I teach. I teach undergraduate medical students, medical trainees, postgraduate, and I do a lot of public education because I enjoy spreading the word, whatever the word is. Uh, And my other passion is writing. Uh, You mentioned some of my books. I write articles for the lay and professional press, and I enjoy very much being able to uh, take uh, items that have come out in the media and translate them into English so that the public can understand what's going on and then take media things and translate them into medicalese so that the medical profession, the healthcare profession, understands what's on people's minds. Give or take a little, that's what I do. Great. Susan, please tell us about your work. Well, thank you. Um, CARP is focused on advocating for political change, policy change. And so clearly, while we do quite a bit of research on the various and sundry issues that affect our quality of life as we age, whether it be access to health care or pharmacare, caregiver support, or pension reform, and indeed today the rights for older drivers, all of these issues require us to rely on experts like Dr. Gordon to help us understand what the problem is, and we take that knowledge and turn around and and face towards the policymakers and say to them, these are the things that must change. Now, of course, like many NGOs, we can make that pitch, but the difference for us at CARP is that we have 300,000 members across the country, and they are actively engaged in civic life, and we actively engage with them. So we have a magazine that goes to every doorstep. We have a newsletter that communicates with uh, 90,000 email addresses, and we have a survey within that uh, yeah, that newsletter that captures their opinion and their input. And what we get with this 
kind of engagement with our members is the authority to speak on their behalf when we are at parliamentary committees or meeting with ministers or speaking to the media. But also, there's also that sense that if you don't take it from me personally or my two staff, you're going to hear from any number of those 300,000 members across the country. We also have 56 chapters uh, run by very capable and and active uh, chapter chairs who will bring this message to the local politicians. And so I often say that the issues that we raise are not new. The approach that we take to bringing them to the forefront is somewhat unique. And I tell anybody who will listen that we're sort of at the pointy end of the stick when it comes to trying to seek social change. And so that's what we do at CARP. Right. Now, Michael, yes. um, I want you to say to us what you see as the most difficult challenges created by driving in an aging population. What are the most difficult challenges? Well, I can look at it at a macro level, and I can look at it at a micro level. We'll start with micro. Because micro is what I see in my office, and I see at least once a week, and I only have one clinic a week. That means every clinic I have, I have at least one person that I had two, in which driving was one of the issues. And it presents itself in a number of ways. One of the common ways is the family of a person is concerned about their driving, The family doctor is not willing to undertake the decision because they don't want to, in quote, lose the patient and lose the patient's trust. So they refer the patient to me because they know that I can be the bad guy, in quotes, if that's what it comes to, because I'm not the ongoing physician. So I have lots and lots of people referred to me with a, you might say, um, uh, presumptive diagnosis, and I'm using the ones right now with cognition because there are other reasons as well, but they often get picked up more readily because the, the, the frameworks are clearer. So sent to me with a known or assumed cognitive impairment, and it's the children that have precipitated the request because they're concerned. And then I do a full geriatric assessment, try to determine all the aspects of that person, including their cognition. And depending on what I think is going on, uh, the extremes are right on the spot. You make a decision that the person fulfills all the requirements according to the legislation by which we are bound, or it's not clear. And then we look at what way we can clarify what's going on without in any way endangering the public. Because my responsibility and my role as doctor in the Motor Vehicle Act is protecting the public. Right. In other words, I'm supposed to be, for whatever, better or for worse, the gatekeeper. I mean, there are those who would say that's not shouldn't be our role. But for better or for worse, that's the way the Motor Vehicle Act is framed, is that if we think somebody may be at risk, that means a risk to the public, we're supposed to do something. So right. sometimes, if I can, right. I can temporize and start doing things to figure out what's going on before I make the decision one way or the other, which really is either reporting or not reporting. Got it. Susan, what do you see as the most difficult challenges created by driving in the aging population? One of our greatest concerns, and we get this from our members a a great deal, is that those who 
um, feel that they're not able to drive, say, at night or on major highways, will self-regulate. They take themselves off the road at those times or take themselves off altogether if they feel that they're just not competent on the road anymore. Where there's a difficulty, of course, is if there's any cognitive deficiency, and that's where Dr. Gordon's expertise comes into a sharp relief. Now, if everybody who had potentially any difficulty were to be examined by Dr. Gordon in their own community, then I think we would have no problem because there would be a proper professional standard for screening out someone who is unsafe on the road. Unfortunately, that isn't the architecture of how things happen. And way too many of our members are being screened out, or they feel they are being screened out, by people who are not experts, that they are being observed to be somewhat frail, having difficulty with movement, uh, forgetful about things, misplacing their keys, for example, and yet they feel that they're perfectly capable of driving, but don't feel they're going to be able to prove it. And that's where we have this difficulty of, uh, of people living under the prejudice that with age comes incompetence, which is the prevailing thought, and many of the, our screening processes, including recall exams that bring you back before the ministry, also uh, anticipate that at a certain age, by definition, you are likely to be incompetent, and so we put you through some kind of testing mechanism, which in Ontario consists of an eye test and a written test, which of course doesn't examine your actual ability to drive, and people can see that that seems, uh, you know, naive, and they figure true or not, that they're actually being monitored while they take that test to see if there is some kind of you know, anecdotal evidence of their incompetence. And so this creates a real high level of fear and concern. So you have that kind of sort of prejudice out there that people are afraid of already. And you watch the media, you see that that's really the operative norm. Then they feel that they're not being judged fairly, and they will lose something at the micro level that is exceedingly important to them, their independence and their dignity. So we need to find a way in which everybody can, who may have some cognitive difficulty gets to see a Dr. Gordon in, in their path. Right, I'm here? going to have to stop you there because of the tyranny of timing. We have to take the break. So oh. let's do that. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. 
How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is family caregivers and safe driving for seniors. So now let's talk about the things that family caregivers should know about aging and driving. Now, Michael, first of all, please would you say what's meant by cognitive impairment? And can you then tell us, please, from the perspective of mental health and health generally, what do you think are the most important things that family caregivers should know about aging and driving? Well, cognitive impairment is medicalese based on English words that really basically just says there is some decline in the cognitive powers that normally accompany the living individual so that... There are many possible causes, but there's no question that there's an increase of prevalence, which means the number of cases per given population that's associated with age, irrespective of the different causes, and that the main manifestation that most people recognize, but it's not the only thing that uh, active symptoms are what's called memory deficits, i.e., the main one is recall and the way the family says, I speak to my father on the phone, five minutes later he calls and says, why didn't you call me? I have the conversation and five minutes later he calls and says, I've been waiting for your call. And iterations of that. In other words, the family begins to see repetition, not adhering to normal activities of life, forgetfulness. The big ones are leaving the stove on, leaving the water running, forgetting to do this, that, and the other thing. So that that's the short form. There are other manifestations that go. I'm in going with to it. stop you there, not because I want to choke you off on this one, but I want you just to get onto the the perspective of the question of what family caregivers should actually know about all this, because as you've as you've implied, it can be a very complicated topic. So, yeah, what well, should family caregivers know about? Usually, when there's a degree of cognitive impairment, whatever we call it, the family recognizes if they're driving with the person some deficits in the driving, in their ability to pay attention, to do more than one thing at the same time, which driving often entails, to be easily distracted, and depending on what other things they have, because most people have more than one condition, they begin to feel that it is becoming unsafe to drive, judging distances, assessing speed, and having the insight to anticipate what may happen in the future, which in driving is critically important. Getting behind the wheel and making a car go is easy. Right. Now, Susan, I'm going to ask you a similar question, but from the perspective of road safety, what are the most important things that family caregivers should know about aging and driving? Road safety. 
I think the key here is everybody wants everyone to be safe on the road. Nobody wants and recently are not arguing that a person who's unsafe to drive should continue to be able to do so. What we're talking about, of course, is the screening mechanisms and what families can and should do about it, and more important, just as importantly, what they shouldn't be doing about it. Um, there may be, and this is where we need to learn from Dr. Gordon, as to what evidence is there when there are some cognitive difficulties that, by definition, they should not be driving. At what point do you draw the line and who should draw it? And I think the importance for family members is to seek out that information rather than making judgments on their own and have the conversation with the driver to make sure that they understand that those are issues and that they may or may not want to give up their license in the absence of being able to see an expert. So that's where we have that that difficulty of people feeling that their licenses are being taken away from them without their input and within an unfair process. That's the focus that we're taking. And, of course, this conversation for us more recently was precipitated by a number of things, but the most uh, egregious, uh, although well-meaning, well-meaning was something up in Sudbury where uh, a local group that dealt with dementia and the police and some community groups decided a good idea would be to have family members, instead of seeking out a Dr. Gordon, would seek out the police, would actually anonymously tell the police that their relative probably shouldn't be driving and call in the police to come to their home and talk to them about it. Can in, I, in that, of course, can, you don't have a professional judgment either. Can I respond? Go on. With all due respect of you, the way you're honoring me, number one, you don't have to be me to make the assessment. And if you did, there would never be enough of me's around looking at the number of geriatricians and the population in Canada would take a thousand years with full training. So you don't have to be me. We're not talking about something that's that sophisticated. You have to understand the process, and many people can do it even beyond geriatric medicine specialists, primary care physicians, occupational therapists. The process is not all that complicated. There are some subtleties in it. There is also a process by which we as a group, that's medical and non-medical professionals, are looking at what components of the assessment give us the greatest return on accuracy of a person's driving ability. In other words, ideally, in the same way that we have certain tests that can tell you if your thyroid is working and it's a simple blood test, many conditions require more than that. Driving, it would be nice if we could do a simple test and find that it correlated perfectly with an on-road test, which is the gold standard. Well, then I have another question for you. First of all, if we accept that the driving test is the gold standard, then one, let's use it, or in the absence of using it, is there a simple test? Well, that's what I'm trying to get to, Mm. is that if you said the gold standard were the driving test, but clearly that would be unmanageable, then what you want to do is find the closest thing that you can that would be a high correlation to an on-road driving test that would be manageable. So there I, are number... I accept that. I accept that yeah, as, okay. a, as an option. I know, but that's would... what a number of groups are looking at now. Until that is verified, clarified, finished, we have to do something. And the thing we're doing is looking at likely risk, trying to screen using the tools that we have, 
the concerns that people who do care, because I'll tell you, even after I tell people that I think they shouldn't drive, you can be sure they're not happy with me either. Of course, I just of have moved up. They've just moved up the level of unhappiness. So now <laughs> it's with me. Okay, and I tell the children, let them be angry, angry with me and not with you, but they're angry with the children for having brought them to me. Mm. So well, that, but I agree with you. I, I don't think we differ here because we tend to look at this nationally, and we've had the following uh, also complaints where people have tried to find a proxy for examining whether or not somebody is capable of driving, including something called Drive Able out in yeah, D.C. Yeah. And our, the complaints that we're getting from our members is that here is a touchscreen technology that they're completely unfamiliar with, yeah. With the result that they are rattled and failed the test, maybe because they couldn't do it properly, but possibly because they just couldn't handle the technology. Yeah, well, so, I use DriveAble a lot, and I must say, so far in my, I don't know, it's an N of 100, so far my expectations have been fulfilled. I've had a few where the person did better than I anticipated. A few of those. Many of them go out on the road. That it's not just touch screen. They're looking, there are a lot of people looking at a touch screen equivalent like the uh, pilots use in um, flight simulator because that would be a lot easier than an on-road test and a lot cheaper. The thing is, right now, right now, we don't have that magic. So you have to use what you have, and what we have is a combination, and there's a group in Ontario looking at it. I was just at a meeting a few months ago looking at a combination of the standard mental status exams, clock drawing, family history, changes in personality, of various parameters that when you put them together are likely to be able to identify those at high risk. Yes. Now, well, that's what that we have right great. now. That would be great if we could have a standard test. Right now, you're aware of some initiatives. I'm aware of some other initiatives. There are many that are happening. In the meantime, we have a fairly, you know, a terrible patchwork where people today are hitting up to certain age thresholds that require them to come in for the eye test or whatever. Yeah, but, and, I mean, the eye test and read and, and, and the test on the uh, rules of the road Rarely do people fail that unless they have very severe cognitive impairment. I'll tell you, if they fail that, they really shouldn't be driving. Well, exactly. But does because it also, it's so simple. Does it also guarantee their, their safety to drive? Of on course the road? not. But right now, that's what the ministry could put. If you said, what if the ministry put in universal on-road testing and invested $100 billion in it? Well, that is unreasonable. But one of the things that we are focusing on, and this uh, admittedly deals more with physical limitations than with uh, cognitive limitations, and that is the issue of remedial training uh, to deal with whatever mobility issues you might have. Sure. And that, you know, that is something that we are pushing as an ethic and also to calm people about their ability to drive. And indeed, in the assessment and going through the process of, of the remedial training, a person could uh, reasonably be expected perhaps to come to the conclusion that they shouldn't be doing this at all. Yeah. Now, it's funny. I was just sent by uh, somebody at work, the University of Florida Fitness to Drive um, site in which family members... And you assume a family member has the best interest of their family member, but also understanding that it affects everybody, right? Because sure. I'll often say to somebody, would you let your child drive with their grandma? They'll say never in a million years. That's pretty telling. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, you know, because normally grandchildren, grandparents is all that wonderful, lovely, say never in a million years. Well, yeah, sure. I don't, I don't feel bad about it. But that's a shorthand test. But this is a, a very, very prolonged questionnaire that somebody who's been driving with the person the last few months answers. And at the end, it gives you a score that says likely okay, likely not okay, and then somewhere in the middle that needs to be followed. So that's one. And there's another part of the website, another that I got, that talks about remediable things that you can do for physical and then how to choose a car that meets the needs of your disability. Now, those are all things that are, are useful. I think, right. you're, I think that we have to look at these two things as two separate things, and, and you're absolutely right. I think dealing with the physical challenges, even, even reaction time, uh, is now being addressed by technology, all manner of in-car assessments, even a car that parks itself, all the rest of that. I think where we're going to continue to have problems is this issue of cognition. And, uh, you know, is it is an absolute that a uh, certain amount of forgetfulness, uh, a loss of certain amount of executive uh, ability, that that by definition means you should get out of the car and off the road. Well, I just was involved in a very large legal case, the details of which I can't give, but I had to review all the aspects of driving and aging. And remember, aging, it's not that the age causes, but the aging is associated in a statistical manner with more and more likelihood of this, that, and the other thing. It's not age alone, it's age plus all that you carry with you, all the baggage. And there's no question that certain aspects of driving that occur, not always in anticipation that you know are going to happen, are very demanding of cognitive decision-making. And those are the ones that are the concern. As I said, getting in a car, turning the ignition and driving is easy. You can almost do it in coma. It's when you have to make a difficult decision. One example being making a left turn into traffic is the most dangerous thing you can do, not counting highway driving. But all those maneuvers, that's, if you look at where accidents occur with seniors, that's the prime place. And if you happen to be talking, whether on the phone, which you shouldn't be, or with somebody, it increases the danger. Now, part of that is your cognitive flexibility, your ability to, to, to multitask, because you're required to do more than one thing at a time. And that The cognitive impairment is really an indicator of the other things because the memory is not the whole problem of cognitive impairment. It's just the one that people can recognize because it's so obvious. There are much more important, subtler things in terms of abilityness to to, to, to um, uh, modulate your responses to things, they all become part of it. The question so, for us, I guess, is from the standpoint of the average driver and all of our members out there who, yeah. who won't have read the reports, they have to ask themselves, all right, at one point, am I going to be judged on my ability? At what, what things in relation to my cognitive ability can still be accommodated? What things can be remediated through training, and at what point must I absolutely stop? Now, that trajectory is not apparent to people, and the question for average people who don't have the luxury of, of going through a full process, but they just get the recall letter, need, you know, we need to have much more public education of what is 
possible, what is available, and in the meantime, preserve people's rights as much as we can. Well, wait. No, no, I'm, going the, to what? I'm going to stop you because it's the tyranny of time. Um, yeah. So we'll take the break now, and we're going to come back. We're going to come back to something, which is I want to know more about where the family caregiver fits into this scene. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Tune in for an enlightening and thought-provoking program called The Child of Gulag. Our program is hosted by Dr. Yuri C. Feinberg, a political refugee and former citizen of the Soviet Union. Dr. Feinberg will add his unique perspective to issues that affect us today and will show how many of these issues are tied to the past, whether directly or indirectly. We'll also discuss future implications of these issues. The forum is open every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is Family Caregivers and Safe Driving for Seniors. Let's talk more, please, about the things that family caregivers should think about. So, Michael, you first. What is your view? You've already said quite a lot about this of testing for seniors and the usefulness of medical tests. But I want you to answer the question from the perspective of family caregivers. What should they know about okay. the strength and weaknesses? Uh, let me start off with, until a while ago, I was a family caregiver with exactly this situation, and so was my sister. So I've been on both sides of the, of the, of the uh, issue. Most family caregivers who really care certainly want to maintain as much freedom for their parent to function and also know they don't want their parent, I'm assuming it's a parent, it could be an uncle or an aunt, to put themselves or anybody in the public at risk. So they are often stuck with, 
what's good for my parent, what's good for society, and if God or nature forbid something were to happen, would I say to myself, you did the right thing, or would I say, how foolish that you didn't bring this to attention? Because that's really what the dynamic is. So I think assuming that a caregiver has the best interest of everybody at heart, what they have to do is as honestly as they can, if they can, say, I, from what I see, from what I really know, from what I've experienced, I think my loved one is a safe, competent driver, although I wish they wouldn't do the following, and the following might be, whether it's mandated by graduated or by thing, I wish they wouldn't drive on the 400s at night. All right? Or I wish they wouldn't do the following in the winter. Now, when Susan said people self-regulate, you say, well, that's good. But there are people who don't self-regulate. They don't have any sense of really what the danger is, and that could be part of the cognitive decline. They assume, and I've had many patients, that they are perfect drivers. And you sit there as they talk about how well they drive with the wife rolling their eyes. So I think family givers care, and if they're not sure what to do, they should be able to seek advice from somebody who at least is understanding and knowledgeable. It could be a family doctor. It could be one of the organizations that deals with the issues of driving. There are a number of organizations around that will do remedial and do evaluations. But most families are stuck between wanting to do the best for their parent, but not compromising their safety or the safety of others. Perfectly fair. Susan, what's your view of testing for seniors, and particularly the usefulness of driving testing, again, from the point of view of what family caregivers should know? I think you're absolutely right that this is the family caregivers absolutely care. The question is whether or not they have the tools to make the judgments as to whether or not their loved one should be driving. And that's really the essence of the issue here. That judgment, whether made anecdotally, whether that is absolutely enough, is it fair, is it adequate, is there going to be, you know, family uh, unhappiness on account of, you know, somebody else making presumptions about your ability to drive. Now, right now, we have in Ontario, and they're different in all the different provinces, the, the requirement that at a given age that you have to be tested a certain way with that written test, for example, with no obligation necessarily to go through, say, a driving test or remedial training. So you basically have an all-or-nothing situation based upon an assessment that doesn't have any medical or professional rigor around it. So I think people would generally accept the process that just much more filled in, if you will, that there's a graduation, that people have a sense of being able to uh, try remedial training, to get evaluations that are not immediately reported to the province. There's, a, there's this really interesting uh, stream of people who, who, who write to us in, with a great deal of anxiety about losing their ability to drive, and they fear, and I, I can't say this enough, they fear that they're not going to be judged fairly. So it's really important to have a testing regimen, a, a licensing regimen that has fair uh, tests or programs that allow people to properly get assessed and to be able to continue to drive safely. And in this case, when you, you know, there's an opportunity also to say, well, perhaps if they complete successfully a remedial training test, that that might actually substitute 
for the recall test that they get at age 80. And those are all the kinds of things that could be in place. Right now, we just have a huge gap between driving along fine and then suddenly fearful that your license is going to be taken away from you. Right. Michael, I want to ask you this. You mentioned a tool for family caregivers to use or a family member to use, uh, a questionnaire to be filled out that would give some kind of guidance about how to interpret things that are going on. Please say more about the idea of tools for family caregivers, such as that one and any others you've, you've experienced with. Yeah. Well, this is just an example. It was sent to me, but it's on a website. It's called University of Florida Fitness to Drive. Uh, I mean, I could have Kelly send you the link. Okay. And uh, you could send it out to everybody. It was just an example. I'm sure there are many. And it's a way of sort of getting a sense of how far off am I. You know, family members usually are pretty perceptive about when they think there's a problem with driving. I mean, sometimes it's blatant. My mother didn't come home for three hours because she ended up in Oshawa. How she got to Oshawa, she says, I took a turn. You know, yes, you can say, well, that could happen. Most people who have enough cognition to know what to do don't end up doing that. You could always say, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. So people have a sense of what it is. And family members usually only want the best out of the, out of the, um, out of the process. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that one could comment on. I don't look at driving as a right. I look at it as a privilege. Um, I don't look at this as age discrimination. I look at it as recognizing the different characteristics that come along. It's a new issue for us. We now have a longevity we never had to deal with before. And the last thing is the mandatory 80-year-old 80-year age test is a very low bar. If you fail the eye, well, the eye is something else because that can be remediated. It's often cataracts or something. But if you fail the vision and the questionnaire, that usually means there's a problem. I have patients who say, I studied and I studied for the test and I still failed. Think about the test and how much recall you have to have if you've studied for it and still can't pass it. It's a very low bar. What I see is the opposite. They pass. They say, I can't imagine that you would consider taking, sending a, a report to the, the, the bureau. I passed the driving test because it's not a test that is high enough to judge anything. It's very low. Well, I happen to agree with Susan, you yeah. because, first of all, the test does not take, uh, test your ability to drive safely. And and the, the problem is that when they are undergoing it, they realize this. Everybody can tell sitting right there that this is not testing my ability to drive. So if it's not testing my ability to drive, what are they testing for? And that's where the uncertainty and the suspicion creeps into the situation, and that's what we want to remove. Because while we are able to identify those people who are truly incapable of driving and in the descriptions that you have given, there are many others who might manifest a bit of shaking, Parkinson's, for example, and others, that a, a non-medical observer might just say, well, according to my observation, this person shouldn't be driving. But that's not how it works. You don't report people to the ministry based on that. Well, you know, try and convince our members that, because they certainly believe... Well, 
But that is what's happening, and that's where we get but is into it, Tell me the truth. Is that what's happening? Well, we that's fill out, what's happening. We fill out that's... a form in which we have to define what the issues are. That may be so, but you're a doctor, and you have that form. They don't believe that, you know, if they have come in front of a doctor, I think that that suspicion is no longer a concern. It's when they go into the ministry office and have these kinds of tests. You know, if they were all offered the driving test on the road test, I think we'd all agree that everybody would be content with the results. No, because far more people would be failing. Very few fail well, then, people. Then, and so they should then. I, I mean, know, but the thing is, to say people are afraid because they believe, you can't base policy on what people believe. You can educate them. That could be your job. You can't say we're going to change public policy because no, people no, believe that, that it's dangerous to get vaccinated. No, I, I'm, I'm okay, not my I'm going to have here. to stop us because it is time for the break again, but this is a very key point. I just want to make one quick observation to you both, though, and that is family caregivers, as you've both said, occupy that middle zone where they're balancing the public need against the interests right. of their family member. And that's profoundly important. And I think what I'm wanting to uh, emphasize from a particular perspective, that is that the family caregivers need to be supported in that role so that they've got tools so they can be helped in making the decisions uh, that in effect are going to balance, make achieve that balance that they're seeking to believe. So let's not let's not pass too far away from the role of the family caregivers. Now that's the end of my um, commercial for family caregivers, so let's take a break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join your hosts, Gary Ray and Ted Griffin Jr., as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to Family 
to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon and Susan Eng. Our topic is Family Caregivers and Safe Driving for Seniors. Let's talk about the ways in which seniors and their family caregivers can be helped. Michael, you first. What do you see as a fair and reasonable basis for seniors to be assessed from the perspective of having to give up driving? Michael? I think one of the things that I have found is quite useful is rather than focusing only on whether you can drive or not, is what do you need the driving for? Because one of the things that can alleviate that terrible fear of not being able to drive is to become certain that that doesn't mean you're going to be an isolate, that you are going to be able to get to where you have to go. If you have enough insight to understand that you have to get to where you have to go, give or take a little, when you need to do so without you being the person who does it. And I have many, many people. And that's a bit of a complex equation, but it's not a difficult one. And that includes what are you paying to keep your car? What are you paying for insurance? What are you paying for maintenance? Where do you live? Where do you go? How often do you go there? How many taxes would it take to go there? Who's in the family that can help you drive? How about seniors for seniors? All the different things. And I had a lady today in my office, just by chance, two hours before this, who said, I decided to give up driving even though I, I suspect she would pass again to drive able. She said, because I realized I don't need my car, and I've given it to my second daughter. So she came to it because she got support to say, you know what, in the meanwhile, while I was planning something else, let's look at how you can get to what you have to do without you being the sole driver. So I think families can help starting the conversation before there's a crisis. Sometimes it happens by accident because somebody has an accident and they can't drive for a month or two and they find they can get all these things done. So I think that's part of it. You don't wait till a crisis. You talk about it. You try to explore it. And then when something happens that you think, boy, it's getting dangerous, you have to seek the best advice you can get depending on where you are. Not everybody's in Toronto around the corner from me. Believe me, there are lots of capable people who know what the score is, and there's more and more of them because it's a major initiative now of most uh, provincial governments. Right. Susan, what do you see as a fair and reasonable basis for human rights and insurance premiums as these relate to seniors driving? I think the most important motivation in this conversation is to respect the dignity and the rights of the older driver. We start first with that, not thinking of ways to get take away their license, but to maintain their independence, their mobility, and so on. So it's, it's quite true what Dr. Gordon says, that if you can help them figure out that they can get by with all of the things that need, they need to get done without driving, if that's the target of your conversation, then great. But that isn't always an option for people, and frankly, they'd like to try to make that decision themselves. And that's where we run into this battleground really, where, you know, there's all these outsiders, including very loving family members who say, well, you know, we have judged you that you should undergo this secondary series of tests. And all well-meaning and probably well-considered, but what we probably need, and as Robert Frost said, good fences make good neighbors, that maybe we should have universal access of this fitness to drive uh, protocol so that people can access it and use it and it is standard and is accepted and accredited. Uh, maybe we have to have much more remedial training as a general ethic. You know, the last time any of these 
people often took any kind of driving program was probably when they first got the license, maybe 70 years ago. So this is an opportunity for us to make sure that everybody is safe on the road if we always target and focus on the individual and their individual rights to be, to, to be able to keep the privilege and for them an important privilege of, of driving. So that's, you know, the perspective that we like to take when we're examining these options that are out there. And yes, there are a lot of options coming to the foreground, but our current uh, assessment system is still uh, targeted on an age basis. Now, Perfectly as, fair. Now, Michael, I'm going to ask you a question, which I'm also going to ask Susan. What's your message for family caregivers who are caring for family members who are elderly relatives who are driving? Michael, what's your message? I, I think, uh, look, obviously you have to have uh, a respect for your loved one and a respect for the society in which we all live and try to find the right balance that you think is not going to deprive your loved one from their mobility and independence at the price of putting anybody else at risk. And that's a, a heavy responsibility. So you have to understand what's in there, seek advice. There's a lot written that you can find out about. Depending on where you live, live, there are people you can go to for advice. And at the end of the day, decisions get made. They may be made differently now than they will in 10 years, but we have to live with what we have now because that's the state of all parts of the healthcare and every other system. So that the, the real issue is you, for, for a family member to be concerned, to be diligent, to be questioning, and to remember that they're on both sides of a very, very important complex equation. Right. Susan, what's your message for family caregivers well, in this situation? Well, I agree with that uh, assessment of the responsibilities of a caregiver. I would only add that we and they should be press pressing for better tools, much more universally accessible and accepted uh, refresher programs, remedial training, technological advances, and so on, so that at the end of this entire exercise, every individual, the driver and the family, believes that a fair and professional assessment was made as to whether or not that person was safe to continue driving. So there's a social justice issue in what you've both been saying, and that is um, how can we be fair to the individual who is not going to be driving anymore? And what you're both saying is let's take account of their needs to continue their lives because another important policy in healthcare is for people to maintain their independence. Absolutely. Uh, as long as they possibly can. Absolutely. And, okay. And if getting around is important, maybe... You don't have to drive. I think that's what you're saying, both yeah. saying, but you do have to do something. Right. And not all of our glorious uh, places in, in Canada, including the periphery of Toronto, are all that well equipped Great. Of course. For, for people. So we've got to do something. Now, I want to say, first of all, thank you both very much for this. This has been um, a discussion of profound importance because I think you've engage the topics in such a way that their importance has come out and you've also engaged the topic in, in the way that says, yes, family caregivers have a role here that we need to respect and support, but of course there are many other issues as well.
So thank you both for that. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be Help Us Defeat Depression. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.